And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show, in which we talk about vacations. Welcome. I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And that's a conversation you can always join. We hope you'll visit us on social media. We're on Pinterest. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. You just have to look for the word Fromers. And we also hope you'll visit us at our website, which is Fromers.com. Even if you're not traveling in the near future, there's a lot of really fun articles there about cuisine, about culture, about history, and about travel. There's been some wacky things going on in the travel industry. Now, anybody who is has been listening to us for a while knows that we're doing the show a little differently now. We are highlighting great travelers, great travel writers, and people who are using travel in an interesting way in their work. Uh, I think Eric... Weiner uh, is all three, and he has a fabulous new book out called The Socrates Express, Express, In Search of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers. Hey, Eric, welcome back to The Travel Show. Pleasure to be with both of you. So the book is a revelation. It is such a wonderful thing to be reading, especially right now in the midst of this pandemic, uh, because it deals with the more important issues of life. What makes a good life? It deals very directly with philosophy. But you've kind of couched it in a in a layer of travel. Uh, you you went to many of the places where the philosophers wrote. Why did you think that was important? Well, basically, uh, Pauline, because I'm a place person. And um, my immediate question is not necessarily what, why, or how, but where. You know, I need to know where, for instance, these great philosophers did their philosophizing. Um, I think there's, there's value in... Uh, walking in the footsteps, uh, literally, uh, of Socrates or Jean-Jacques Rousseau or any of these other philosophers, because, you know, they they weren't just disembodied minds, you know, or like brains floating in a in a jar of ether. Um, right. They, they were fully embodied beings, and they did their thinking in a certain place, and that place matters to me. Yeah, and it, it often shaped what they were writing about. I studied Rousseau a lot in college, and yet I never really had thought about where he lived. And you, you write in the book about how he just despised being in cities. In fact, he got uh, driven out of one, right? He got driven out of uh, several, and <laughs> he was actually no great fan of Paris, the city that so many of us love. Um, he was... Uh, the nature child, you know, he he sang the praises of nature. Uh, he thought it was society that corrupts us that were born essentially good, and uh, and so he he was homeless for much of his life, um, or 
serially homeless, I would say. He was booted out of one town, and he was always on the move, um, and he traveled with his books and his walking stick, and that was his life. And walking, which is, I think, one of the best vacation experiences when you do get out into the world, he had a very philosophical approach to the activity of walking, right? He he had a philosophical approach to it, and it inspired his philosophy. It sort of worked in both directions. So he was he was a world class walker. I mean, he would put in twenty miles a day without thinking anything of it. He once uh, walked some two hundred miles over two weeks between two European cities, and uh, he basically said, "I'm paraphrasing here that he he can't." his mind doesn't work if his legs aren't moving uh, and that he needed to be walking in order to be thinking. And we'd go for these long walks, these reveries in, um, he called them in, in the French countryside, the Swiss countryside. And he would uh, bring along a pack of playing cards and write down the thoughts that came to him on the playing cards. I mean, mm. we, we've all probably experienced this, that you're stuck on a problem. You can't think of a solution uh, whatever it is, you go for a long walk and it, it comes to mind. Right. Yeah. No, it's interesting. A, a number of the philosophers were walkers, right? Yes. And I was surprised the more I researched it, how many of them were, were incredible walkers. Uh, not only Rousseau, but Henry David Thoreau uh, of Walden fame would go for these three, four, five mile jaunts every day in the uh, Massachusetts countryside uh, outside of his home in Concord. Uh, he called it sauntering. He loved that word sauntering. And I like it too. You know, it's, he, he wasn't strutting. He wasn't marching. <laughs> uh, he wasn't even strolling. He was sauntering. It's a great word. Uh, Nietzsche, the German philosopher, would go walking in the Swiss Alps. He said, never trust an idea that wasn't born of fresh air and active legs um, hmm. that, of motion. Uh, and there's a, there's a long list of, of philosophers who, who did uh, their best thinking while walking. Uh, for anybody tuning in late, we're speaking with Eric Weiner. He is the author of the Socrates Express in Search of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers. And you were talking a, a moment ago about Thoreau. That was one of the places that I think has become a pilgrimage for many fans of philosophy. But that is kind of making it a place that Thoreau himself wouldn't recognize. Is that fair to say? I, I think that's fair to say. It's a bit ironic, to put it mildly, that you see people crowding into Walden Palm to see the site where his cabin, where he built his cabin. Um, and it was, you know, an exercise, at least partly in self-isolation. And now it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a tourist attraction, you know, and, or if, for some people, it's certainly more than that. It's a, it's a pilgrimage site. Um, but I think, I think Thoreau would say, you know, don't come to Walden to see where my cabin was. The cabin's actually gone, but the, the cornerstone is still there. Uh, don't come to Walden Pond, you know, find your own Walden or better yet, make your own Walden. I mean, he was a, a rugged individualist, uh, not an easy man to get along with. People found him difficult, um, but he was a, a great thinker and, you know, extremely introspective and not just Walden. He wrote these journals, his diary that he kept every day for his entire life um, that stretched to 14 volumes, 2 million words. And uh, I read pretty much all of them. <laughs> so wow. and he's, he's very, really comes alive in the journals. 
more so you felt than in his books of philosophy than in uh, yeah yeah because he was you know if you've ever kept a, a journal polling you know it's it's it has a intimacy right that that a polished piece of writing doesn't necessarily have there's a a rawness to it and and he's open he's open about you know his self doubts about himself his books did not sell well during his day really at all. Um, that's a major theme for most of these philosophers. <laughs> right. And uh, so he's, you know, you could just see him laying it bare on the page and he, he just seemed extremely relatable. Hmm. And you took from Thoreau uh, uh, this idea of, of how you should be experiencing the world. And so even though you, you felt like you couldn't have quite the right experience where his cabin used to be, you tried to do that. Was it in a Starbucks? Am I getting that right? Uh, I did. I did. Um, I, I was looking for a place to get in touch with my inner Thoreau. Uh, and I'm not really a, a child of nature or even a distant cousin of nature, really. Um, I'm, a, I'm a city boy, I got to be honest. Um, I like my nature in small doses. So um, this this man, Jeff Kramer from the Walden Woods Project, a real Thoreauvian, as they call themselves, he he said, you know, you can go anywhere and and uh, see the world the way uh, Thoreau saw it, saw it. And he said, even a Starbucks. And this appealed to me. So I went there and I must have spent five or six, seven hours in that Starbucks longer than you should. But that was Thoreau's point. Slow down and really see the world around you, that there's this world of hidden beauty just beneath the surface. And if you change your angle a bit, look at it slightly differently or simply slow down, uh, you're going to see this beauty that was there all along. Did you see any beauty in the Starbucks? Uh, not immediately. You know, I, <laughs> I used to work for, for NPR, and I was a correspondent, and I I have uh, a, a very fine-tuned acoustic sense, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I first got there, and I heard things. I heard uh, all kinds of sounds. Um, but Thoreau was a, really favored the visual sense. He was mm -hmm. a, a visual philosopher. And so it took me a while to sort of... Uh, get over the old acoustic habits and focus on the visual. Um, but I eventually did, um, did see beauty there. And it's, you know, it, it sounds almost just pedestrian to say it, but, you know, just the way the sing-song sing -song call of grande latte at the counter <laughs> or, or the, the sound of the espresso machine, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be uh, a symphony or the Louvre at museum. It can be in a Starbucks Right, and I think I think I remember you writing. You you saw a man cradling his newborn son, and that you know that was one of the other things that if you just yeah, I mean there there is this was this was Thoreau's main point. It wasn't go live in the woods like me, you know, turn your back on society. It was about seeing the world with um, an innocent eye, an mm -hmm. innocent eye, the eye of a child, and children know this naturally. Um, as adults, we lose this, but uh, Thoreau's uh, mentor and friend, Ralph Waldo Emerson, said he is a boy and he will be an old boy. <laughs> With he, that, he never we lost have that. to, yeah, we have to take our first break, but don't turn that dial. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have Eric Weiner. He's the author of a terrific new book called The Socrates Express in Search of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers. And as we said in the first segment, uh, Eric traveled to many of the places where these philosophers uh, learned about life. And one of those places, as we know from the title, was Greece. How much of the life of Socrates or Epicurus, or Epicurus, right? How, how do you say his name, that philosopher? Epicurus, not to be Epicurus. confused with the website Epicurus. Common <laughs> right. misunderstanding. So how, how much can you still see of the Greek philosophers if you go to Athens or other parts of Greece? Um, well, you can see... Uh, some of it. You have to use your imagination. I'm not going to lie. You know, it, it's been uh, a good 2,500 years, uh, and, you know, that has worn down the, the artifacts, etc. But, you know, a lot of people ha- head for uh, the Acropolis right away in Athens, um, and I certainly have been there. But my favorite place is the Agora, the, the marketplace. Um, and that is because it was Socrates' favorite place. You know, this was the place where old ancient Athens was teeming with life, with merchants, with just, you know, picture Grand Central Station in New York uh, combined with the flea market, combined with the, the scene in front of a courthouse. I mean, just mm. everything's going on. Right. And he, Socrates practiced retail philosophy. And so you can still see um, the, the ruins from the Agora. And with your imagination, you can imagine what it must have been like uh, back then. Yeah. Well, I, you 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 talk about th- three different schools of philosophy that all were born in Greece. Mm-hmm. There's, of course, Socrates, and then there's Epicurus, and then there are the Stoics. And it was fascinating to me that they each used the, the public spaces of uh, Greece very differently. Yeah. No, you're, abs- you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, Socrates was this sort of roaming retail philosopher, um, homeless in a way, just sort of darting around the Agora. Uh, the, the Stoics, uh, this was all roughly the same time, Socrates first, then the Stoics and the Epicureans, but, you know, not that far apart. And this, the Stoics um, practiced their philosophy under a stoa, which is a sort of colonnade, a covered colonnade. And uh, they would pace and they would talk and they would get, have these animated discussions right there in the center of the city. And that's how they became known as the Stoics, because they practiced under a Stoa. Hmm. Now, Epicurus, he was the hippie of his day. He was like, <laughs> we're not going to be part of this city life. We're going to be outside the city walls in a garden and we're going to put up a wall around the garden. And it was, you know, it was sort of philosophy school meets hippie commune um and you know he was the philosopher of pleasure and so there were all sorts of rumors you know as there were about the hippies what's going on inside that commune um what was going on was philosophy in a different form really we are speaking with eric weiner he's the author of a terrific book called the socrates express in search of life lessons from dead philosophers and i gotta tell you eric I think I want to study Epicureanism. Uh, Epicurus was far, it, it's not hedonism. He was far closer to what uh, the Buddha 
was doing I after reading your book. And I feel like such an idiot because I've used the word Epicurious uh, or Epicurean to describe hedonism for years as a travel writer. And I've been totally wrong. Uh, Can you Um, let her? You're you're not alone. So don't feel bad (laughs) Um, because, you know, he's been uh, defined by his successors, uh, uh, by the Christian church and by others since that, you know, he's all about this gluttonous pleasure. And as you say, it really was the opposite. He was he was really about simplicity and the simple pleasures. He said, yes, life is about pleasure. That was the ultimate ideal was pleasure. But he didn't mean this hedonistic sort of pleasure. He defined pleasure, um, the Greeks had a word for it, ataraxia, which really means an absence of suffering, right? And, and as you right. say, that sounds awfully similar to Buddhism, right? Yeah. The Buddha's first four of his four noble truths is always suffering, and the second is we suffer because we're attached. And right. Attached to what, Epicurus would say? Well, attached to uh, these elaborate pleasures. You know, it's not enough to have a simple car. We need a Tesla. It's not enough to have a simple meal. We need a five-star, you know, a three-Michelin-star meal. Does it go up to three? I don't. I can never remember. Uh, Three stars, yes. I Three stars, so. yes. Yeah, you need you need to have a Michelin starred restaurant, and he would say no. You know, even a simple pot of cheese can be a gourmet meal if you have the right mindset. In fact, he said the low hanging fruit was best. The, the the apple you could grab off the tree was going to be right. better than an elaborate dinner because you can easily grab that apple off the tree, whereas you're going to have to convolute your life a lot to make enough money for the elaborate feast. Which to then make enough of- money to be kind to to, to be. You, he thought you became essentially a, a junkie, a gourmet junkie that you were dependent on uh, the job, or therefore dependent on your boss to make the money. Um, you were dependent on the people who worked in the restaurant, um, and you became essentially a, a prisoner of pleasure. And he thought that was wrong. Um, right. He thought that pleasure at its most, at its simplest, um, uh, natural pleasures, he called them, uh, he thought those were the ones that provided the most lasting contentment. Right. And you went and looked for his garden. You couldn't quite find it. Uh, but you also went to Montana. <laughs> Was it Montana to, uh, no, to no, Stoic? No, it's okay. I went to Is Napa, California. I went to Napa, California looking for uh, modern Epicurean. Uh, and I found him in a in a 70-something-year-old man named Tom Merle, who's, who's living in Napa. And I just love Tom because he's living in the most, you know, sort of, Epicurious part of the world, you know, the, the most gourmet part of the world with wine and cheese and food. And yet he was a real devotee of the real Epicurean philosophy in the original sense. He's read him, he studied him, and um, so I went to Napa uh, to find Tom. Right, right, absolutely. All right, for anybody tuning in late, we are speaking with Eric Weiner. He's the author of a number of great books. Another one of my favorites is called The Geography of Bliss, about the happiest places on earth. His newest, just out, is called The Socrates Express in Search of of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers. We have to take a short break, but don't turn that dial. We'll be talking travel. We'll be talking philosophy. We'll be talking about a lot more with Eric Weiner, and we will be right back.
You're listening to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my father, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have Eric Weiner, the author of a great new book called The Socrates Express, In Search of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers. And as we said earlier, Eric traveled to many places uh, so that he could get a more full experience of these philosophers. And one of the places you traveled to, you went to Stoic Camp. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was a hilarious chapter, I gotta say. Where is Stoic Camp? And it's what in is the, it? the Snowy Range Mountains of uh, Wyoming, uh, about a half hour outside of Laramie, in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and the Stoics, one, uh, this is not a coincidence because the the Stoics believe that we are at our most content when we live in accord with nature. Um, so a philosophy professor from the University of Wyoming named Rob Coulter said, well, we got nature here. I'm a Stoic. Let's have a Stoic camp where people can get together and uh, read about Stoicism and more than that, practice it. And to practice it, you have to be uncomfortable, which you were. <laughs> at yeah, this was not glamping, Pauline. <laughs> this was, you know, uh, some of the participants, a fair number, were grad students who are apparently not used to the creature comforts I am. And we were all sort of just thrown into the, these dorm rooms with bunk beds and uh, not much heat and not many creature comforts. Uh, but the Stoics would say uh, that you can't control that. That's Stoic camp. That's life, as we're all experiencing now. Bad things happen. Yep. Uh, you can't control the circumstances of life, but you can control your reaction to those circumstances. 100% they believe, and they thought that was tremendously important. And this is a philosophy that greatly influenced the founding fathers of the United States, right? Uh, it did. Uh, Jefferson uh, and Franklin Adams, many of them uh, were believers in Stoic philosophy. Um, there's a, a Stoic thread sort of running throughout uh, uh, the American experience, really. Uh, and uh, it, it sort of goes up to, cur to current times. Uh, Bill, President Bill Clinton uh, thought that uh, a Stoic book called Meditations by a, a Roman emperor and Stoic named Marcus Aurelius was the best book uh, he ever read. Uh, there have been uh, POWs, American POWs shot down uh, over North Vietnam during the Vietnam War who said that they, uh, this is James Stockdale I'm thinking of, who said he survived many years in the prison uh, because of Stoic philosophy. Mm. And at its basis, I, I'm going to try and give this in a nutshell. Stoic philosophy is there are certain things you control, certain things you can't control, but you can always control your reaction to things. Right, right. So, the, the Stoics, yeah. so the, the, how did that play out as a camp, going to a camp for this? Well, we, we I couldn't control, for instance, the, the discomforts of stoic camp um and it, it was pretty rough um uh, you know and uh and my instinct you know it's it's in my nature to complain it's, it's also in my <laughs> name frankly um, so uh i want to complain and the first thing i want to do is i want to change it right i want to uh, I, I want the beds to be more comfortable, and I've convinced that if the beds are more comfortable, then I'd be happy, or I want the food to be better. If the food was better, I'd be more happy. 
Uh, and the Stoics say no. Um, to wish life for otherwise is a recipe for unhappiness. Also sounding very Buddhist, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and they say that that is the source of our suffering, that we wish life to be otherwise. And um, you need and, a taste of the bad life in yeah, order to... Yeah, and they, they believed in practicing sort of premeditated adversity. They would say, think about the worst thing that can happen to you, you know, and, and practice it and practice your your reaction to it. Um, so at the... Yeah. Sorry. Go so ahead. at the camp, you were deprived of certain things, but you also were spending time discussing the philosophy. It just wasn't entirely about deprivation. Right. It wasn't, <laughs> we, we, we got up, we had our coffee and styrofoam cups, and we, we talked about uh, Epictetus, who was a former slave turned uh, philosophy teacher. We read Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, which I would recommend to everyone to read. It's a slim book, um, but there's a lot of wisdom in its pages. And we we discussed it. Um, you know, philosophy is really a, a group activity. You know, we, we mm. think of philosophers as being these lone wolves who go off and think by themselves, and, and they do occasionally, but a lot of it happens uh, in a group, um, whether it's a bunch of Stoics getting together and talking, or Epicureans in the garden, or, you know, Socrates used sort of the the buddy system, you know, sure. basically have conversations with people and test each other's ideas and question each other's assumptions. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And an interesting thing about the book is you have included some people that might not usually be considered philosophers. We've got about a minute and 10 seconds before we have to take a break, but let's start with India, and then we'll we'll get back to that subject after the break. You have Gandhi in the book. H how is he a philosopher? He was a philosopher of action, right? I mean, he had lots of ideas, but ultimately, the way he presented his ideas was not on the page, though he did plenty of writing. It was uh, on the streets, demonstrating, protesting, nonviolently. And there was a very deep and profound philosophy behind that, but it manifested itself on the streets of, uh, of Delhi and, and Bombay and Calcutta and the other cities of the time. It was a lived philosophy. So he absolutely, Gandhi was a philosopher. I yeah. believe that. All right. We have to take a quick break. We're going to hear more about India, more about Gandhi uh, when we return. Once again, we have been speaking with Eric Weiner, the author of a terrific new book called The Socrates Express. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with Arthur Fromer, my father. And on the line, we have Eric Weiner, the author of a new book called The Socrates Express, In Search of Life Lessons from Dead Philosophers. So in a nutshell, Eric goes to many places where philosophers lived uh, or that in some way bring up the spirit of that philosopher. And then he talks about their ideas. And some of these places are places you lived you lived in India and had a, a, a really moving uh, 
experience there. Not I should almost I want to say moving lifestyle because this became uh, you met a young man who became part of your family. Can you tell that story and, and right. how that works into the book? Right. So I, I I landed in Delhi quite a few years ago. I won't say how many. And I'd never been to India before, but I had signed on to be NPR's first ever uh, New Delhi based correspondent. Just dove in head first and I rent an apartment that will be the bureau and everything. And the landlord says, well, here's your, you have an air conditioner. He was very proud of that. Oh, and by the way, you have a servant. I'm like, say what? And he says, yeah, um, Kalash was his name. And he comes upstairs and he's skinny as a rail and must be 11 years old if that. And I was like, I don't know about this, but it seemed too easy to sort of wash my hands of the situation. So Kalash would, sort of take a break from cleaning the, the landlord's apartment and come upstairs to mine and and sort of clean a little bit every day. But, you know, he didn't speak any English, but he learned English speaking to me and my wife. And and we became friends and, and I became sort of a, a parent father figure to him. I think that's fair to say. Sure. And and we, we are in touch to this day, um, some 20, 30 years later, and uh, yeah, I think you you had it right. He he is part of my family now. And you got a tutor for him. You you helped him. Yeah, he had, he was an educated. orphan. He was not in school. Uh, we got him a tutor. We eventually moved out from the evil landlord's <laughs> apartment, and and he came with us. And you know, then when I I left India, because this is what you do as a correspondent, it's sort of like being a, a diplomat. You know, you have your posting and you move on. Um, but we got him into a boarding school. He finished his education. And, and now the, the thing is, he's, he's a landlord himself. He actually mm-hmm. owns a, a building. And wow. he has a little stationery store called Emma Stationery, named after his daughter, Emma. I am, I'm his, her uh, godfather. And, um, you know, uh, sometimes things work out in life. Yes, um, not always, but when they do, you have to, you have to smile. Well, you write about in the book his relationship to your obsession with Gandhi. <laughs> right. Is, I have this is... Gandhi problem. I, I just I <laughs> fell in love. I guess I'm a closet idealist or maybe not even in the closet. I just I just immersed myself in Gandhi. I read everything he wrote. I read many biographies of him. I I went to uh, the various ashrams that he lived in in India and uh, and I've been to the place um called Birla House, which is now a museum where uh, where he was assassinated uh, in 1948. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, 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 and Kalash didn't really understand this because, you know, most Indians feel about Gandhi the way most Americans feel about George Washington mm-hmm. or Benjamin Franklin. They're on the money, you know, literally on, the, on our money, and we respect them. But we don't really, like, live the way they do. We don't, haven't really read their writing. Um, but I had this weird obsession with Gandhi and, and Kalash couldn't quite understand it. Right. And it's it's a fascinating thing in the book. You also lived in Japan, which seems like the exact opposite of, of India, <laughs> just in the way life is lived in those two nations. And you yes. wrote about the author of The Pillow Book. I'm not going to try and say her name because I'll massacre say it. Seishonagan. Seishonagan. You got it. Perfect. And how she had this philosophy of beauty, which is very much part of the daily life of Japan. And it was something I had kind of felt amorphously, but reading it in your book, it seemed like a really good key to understanding Japan. 
it's it's the beauty of small. The beauty yes. of small, really. Uh, everyday things and small things. And she, in this book, um, that's kind of a collection of lists, you know, and very opinionated lists. You know, you got to love it. She's like, things I find terribly annoying, things I find incredibly annoying, things I find beautiful. And these and, are lists in the 10th century, right? Yeah, we're going back to the 10th century, but it seems remarkably relevant and present. Um, you know, she finds, you know, strawberries in a bowl, uh, beautiful in a child's kimono, and and just these descriptions. It's very sensuous. It's very tactile. Um, it's olfactory, too. They had this very refined sense of smell back in, it's called the Heian period of Japan. And it was, it's been called a cult of beauty, which I mm. love. Like yeah. if I ever join a cult, Pauline, <laughs> that's the one for me, the cult of beauty. And, and they, they actually had this refined sense of smell that they would have these scent offs, which are like competitions to see who could mi mix the most aromatic incense. Um, and they had scenting frames where they put their clothes on so that the, the clothes would be sort of absorb the scent and they would just smell really wonderful. Um, on that note, we have to take a quick, <laughs> quick break, <Okay. laughs> but we'll be right back. to the travel show i'm pauline fromer here with my father arthur fromer on the line as i've said before is eric weiner the author of a terrific new book called the socrates express and when we left off we were in japan with the author of the pillow book looking at the beauty of life the cult of beauty but you know as you say in the book when you go to tokyo there are a lot of ugly things there right <laughs> How does how do the Japanese kind of balance the beauty of small things with uh, their desire to make things work and be very efficient and sometimes ugly in what they create? Yeah, I guess they, it's a matter of valuing things differently. You know, you go to Tokyo, you see these big buildings on wide boulevards like Meiji Dori and and even, you know, uh, concrete everywhere. The Japanese have four times more concrete per capita than the U.S. There's just, mm. they line riverbanks with concrete. And on the, the perspective of the big, Japan is ugly, uh, aesthetically, I think. But yeah. you walk around a corner, you go to a little alleyway, walk into a little sushi, uh, sushi restaurant, and it's small and it's beautiful. And there's this attention to detail. Um, the way the chopsticks rest on a little stand and everything is just so. If you've ever had a bento box, yeah. um, you know how beautifully it's arranged and how it's packaged. Uh, and so they they see beauty in the small and just basically ignore the ugliness of the big. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. At one point, you talk about going into this exquisite stationery store, which is uh, massive, yeah. uh, with every type of paper and scented and different weights, and it just sounds like heaven on earth. In it is. Way. If you love, like, old-fashioned notebooks, and if you're a fan of analog, the Itoya, they put in a plug for the Itoya uh, stationery <laughs> store in the Ginza District of Tokyo, 18 floors of analog heaven, yes. 
Right, right. No, it sounds just wonderful. And I'm sorry we didn't get to the other philosophers, but it for me, it was a wonderful trip around the world because you do hear about place in the book, uh, but you also get to get reacquainted with or acquainted for the first time in many cases yeah. for me. Hey, can I say one, one, one thing? Sure, um, yeah. So I've been thinking as we're talking, you know, about the connection between travel and philosophy, and it's it's certainly true. I did go to these places to to sort of feel and sense where these philosophers did their thinking. But also, um, in a way, Pauline, I think uh, travel and philosophy sort of come from the same motivation. So the, hmm. the American writer Henry Miller once said about travel that your, your, one's destination is never a place, but a new way of seeing things. And I think hmm. we've all had that experience traveling where we go somewhere and we, we see the world differently. That's sort of travel at its best. And I think that's really the goal of philosophy as well, um, yeah, as I interpret it, is to see yeah. uh, things otherwise. Uh, yes, look absolutely. Look at things differently. Yeah. We have to say goodbye to both Eric and to you. We thank you so much for listening to the Fromer Travel Show. We'll be back again next week. And to those of you who are traveling, Dad? We wish you a hearty bon voyage. <laughs>